Welcome to the program. We've got a great show today. Dr. Margaret Cox Henderson, with 25 years clinical psychology experience, uh, is in the studio with us. And there's been such a wide range of emotions and feelings over the past two weeks here in Ventura in Santa Barbara County. We've tried to make sense of it all and try to deal with the aftermath of the Thomas fire. It's nice to have Dr. Henderson here. We'll try to understand these emotions we've all been feeling. Also, we have Suze Montgomery in the studio. She's part of our nonprofit Spotlight. She's also known as the Senior Advocate with a tremendous amount of resources and knowledge for seniors here in Ventura County and Santa Barbara County. Now, this show will go onto our podcast directly after it airs. You can check out all of the Big Money in the 805 shows on your phone with a podcast app. You can listen while in the car or listen anytime. It's always free. It's always on demand. So you can go to your phone and search for Big Money in the 805 to subscribe. Michael Anderson is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Maranatha Financial. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Maranatha's investments on this program. All opinions expressed by participants on this program are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Maranatha Financial or its affiliates. For more information, visit Maranatha.com. It's time for Big Money in the 805 with your host, Michael Anderson, bringing you a feature interview, a local nonprofit spotlight, and some financial wisdom. Get local and relevant information for the 805. For show notes and more information, go to maranatha.com. And now, here's your host, Michael Anderson. And now it's time for our feature interview. We have Dr. Margaret Cox Henderson with us today. Dr. Henderson is a clinical psychologist, a professional speaker and an award-winning author. She is the author of the book, Optimistic Aging, From Midlife to the Good Life, An Action Plan. Now, this will transform your fear of aging into excitement for your future. She has over 25 years of experience, as I mentioned, as a clinical psychologist, and Dr. Margaret Cox Henderson. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's my pleasure. And we've had a wild three weeks here in Ventura and Santa Barbara County, and mm-hmm. I want to try to just make sense of all of these emotions we've been feeling, at least try to understand them a little bit more. So maybe you can share with our listeners, what are the emotions? What are these that one might experience when going through a traumatic experience with losing a home? Well, not surprisingly, it's of course an emotional roller coaster. There is gratitude for those whose homes were spared. There's devastation for those who've lost their homes. There's a community-wide feeling of coming together. But I think probably the biggest issue is grief. And that's across the board, whether you've lost your home, your belongings, um, animals, or whether you've witnessed that, just having your whole life shaken up in terms of the sense of safety that we have, even having that upended is is just devastating. So grief and loss, anxiety, of course. But I think underneath a lot of this is just a feeling of helplessness. Honestly, in, in my years of, of clinical practice, it's apparent that helplessness, I think, is almost the hardest human emotion to tolerate. It tends to leave us ping-ponging back and forth between despair and anger. Now, I think to that extent, it can also... This type of a crisis can lead to a crisis of faith for many people, and that certainly can be a crisis of faith from a religious perspective, but even for folks who are not religious, it's really about kind of how we think about life, why we think things happen, good things happen, hard things happen, 
and your belief system about that might incorporate something as traumatic as this, but for most people, it really doesn't. And this kind of thing shakes us to the core. So, of course, all of that brings up lots of emotions going in lots of different directions, and it's really important to have some patience there with yourself and with your loved ones. I really appreciate that, and I think that's well said. Maybe you can share with us some advice. What advice can you give to the victims when dealing with the trauma like this? Well, I would say that, you know, one of the things that you want to look for are any symptoms of post-traumatic distress. There's obviously post-traumatic stress disorder, but even short of it becoming sort of a clinically concerning phenomenon like that, there are a lot of things to be watching for specifically. With this kind of response, the body goes into some real upheaval. All of the things that happen in our minds where we sort of spin over and over again about, you know, memories of what happened or fearful thoughts about the future or whatever. So those cognitive components can be very difficult. You can have what's called flash where people are reliving distressing experiences. And that can be very distracting when you're trying to kind of focus on something else. And these, the clinical term is called intrusive experiences, where, intru- where experiences into your mind when you don't want to think about them. And that can be very anxiety provoking as well. And then on a body level, the body tends to go into what's called sort of a fight, flee, or freeze response. And the fight response, you can kind of think of as fending off a predator, but what does that look like when a predator is a fire and there's not much you can do about it? But in hindsight, the body is still physically reactive that way, or it wants to run away, or it just gets frozen. And that's sort of the most helpless response where the body just shuts down. So in terms of advice for people dealing with this kind of trauma, one of the most important things is to just pay close attention to your emotional life, both in terms of the feelings you have, the thoughts you're having, and the body sensations you're having to observe for those kinds of reactions and to remind yourself that this is a normal response to a catastrophic experience. There's nothing pathological about it, um, certainly in the early stages. But in terms of proactive things you can do, it becomes very important to connect in community. And that happens quite naturally. I think people reach for each other to find comfort in connection. But if you're finding that you're isolating yourself or pulling away, it is important to reach out to loved ones, community members. Another really important um, thing to do is to be physical, to move, to, to be active. And I understand that the air quality is pretty difficult to tolerate right now. So it's not a great time to like go outside and go for a walk. But if there are ways that, you know, in a more comfortable respiratory environment, you can find a way to work up a good sweat or to find a way to to physically move, that becomes really important just because it helps the body discharge all of the adrenaline that's kind of held in there and gets gets trapped and complicated. And then I guess the last thing I would say on this topic is just that it's really important to return to routines as quickly as possible. Those are the things that kind of stabilize life that help us feel some sense of normalcy. And so to be able to come back to the sort of standard getting up and eating breakfast and 
doing, you know, if there's a way to get back to work or even just, again, a structure, meals, bedtimes, waking up at a regular time, having those sort of structural components of your day back in order can be helpful. And that's hard if you're displaced from your home, staying somewhere else. That can be very difficult, but it's important to look for ways to do that, if that makes sense. You know, another thing I've noticed is many friends didn't lose their home, and I've observed them feeling this form of almost survivor's guilt. What, yeah. What's really going on here? Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's there's so much fear as we're watching this thing, right? And, and how is this going to go? And there's, of course, tremendous relief when your home is spared. But then when that's mixed in with watching other people in your community, your friends, whose lives have been devastated, even strangers watching them in their, in their despair, that is a really uncomfortable feeling to feel relief in the face of devastation. And I think, again, this comes back to that crisis of faith and whether that's a spiritual faith or whether that's, again, just whatever the cognitive structure you have about why you think things happen, that question of why was I spared when someone else I respect or care about or who I know is a good person, they were not spared and how do I deal with that? So that's a lot of emotional upheaval. And I think that's part of what's going on there. But then I guess the other question is what to do with that kind of survivor's guilt. You know, we don't want it to wash away the relief or the gratitude that is naturally there. And then to kind of think about, all right, what are some ways that I can step towards action and, and engage constructively in my community or by being supportive or whatever, you know, you'll find that a lot of the kinds of advice that I'm giving are going to be moving towards, you know, they're going to be ways to step towards or step towards connections, step towards physical activity as ways to, to help. Um, I think generally are supportive strategies when that survivor's guilt is really very consuming. Now, a lot of the community has, has been so supportive with trying to help and almost mm -hmm. seeking different ways to help. What advice mm -hmm. can you share and offer in terms of giving friends help and the help that they want to have? Ultimately, it becomes important for survivors of a trauma like this to have some kind of positive narrative in the end about this. But I think one of the things that's tricky when friends are trying to be supportive is that we can jump a little bit too quickly to sort of those look on the bright side or trying to be encouraging or positive kinds of stances. And so the first thing that's really important is to just listen. And it can be really hard to listen, especially if your home has been spared or if you live somewhere far away, but you're calling a, a family member who is there in the thick of this. Um, but to just listen and to hear the fear, the grief, the loss, and be able to just reflect that back to hear the hurt. Once we've heard that and can kind of like allow the person to really be in that experience without trying to talk them out of it, right, then we can kind of gently sort of offer and just feel out like how receptive they are to any kind of encouragement or any kind of, but it's mostly just that listening. And then I think the other thing that's important to keep in mind is that people who are going through this level of natural disaster or trauma, they're cognitively overwhelmed. And so often people will say, you know, oh my gosh, just let me know what I can do to help. I'd help in any way. Just let me know. And that can right. be sort of too big an ask almost for somebody who can't even think straight because their brain is just rambled from the overwhelm of this. And so that's where 
really brainstorming some specific ideas. I can help with your child after school today. I can bring you a meal this day, or I can bring you breakfast. What would be better? And to just like almost come up with three options. Would any of these help so that they don't have to come up with a specific? And I think that, like you said, there's been an outpouring of community support. And I think that is important as well to kind of think of ways to generally engage as well as specifically engage with with people who you know in particular. And if they're sort of not ready to receive help, then to kind of think about, all right, what are some ways to to support, whether it's making a donation, whether it's showing up as a volunteer, whether it's helping somebody literally cull through the, the, the ashes of their home and is there anything left and what it's like to keep company with that. Those are not easy to, to stand present with, but so, so important to not let the community do that alone. So let's talk about where we go from here. So mm-hmm. thinking down the road a little bit, what's the ideal and healthy result from something like this, maybe three or five years down the road? Well, one thing I really want to share with your listeners is the concept of post-traumatic growth. We hear a lot about PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, but what is actually statistically much more common is that people come out of a traumatic experience like this actually feeling stronger, feeling more resilient, just the way they feel right away. But I do think to your point of, you know, down the road several years, how will you likely look back on this. Yes, it will, of course, be a period of of tremendous upheaval um, and loss and grief. But the question of what it looks like to have this help you come out of it stronger, this concept of crisis opportunity, right, where where a crisis can kind of help us come forward. I am from Colorado, and so no stranger to wildfires here in our community as well, although I live in Denver, so I haven't directly experienced this as you all have. But one of my friends here in Colorado is a woman named Kristen Muller, and she's written a book about this subject of women who came through a Colorado wildfire and, and lost their homes. And it really is inspiring and it's and it's worth picking up. It's called Phoenix Rising. And the subtitle is Stories of Remarkable Women Walking Through Fire. And it is this idea of post-traumatic growth where you can come through like this. And what the research shows in these kinds of things is that people who've had a life-threatening experience, an experience that really sort of brings mortality near or the destruction of of life as we know it, there's just kind of a shift in priorities typically. And this happens in all kinds of situations, whether it's a terrorist attack or a mass shooting or a wildfire or where people's priorities really shift and they become much more focused on meaningful engagement in their lives. They focus more on their relationships. They're more present in the here and now. And there's something really actually beautiful that can happen there, which is where we just savor our life experiences in a more meaningful way. And there's a cherishing, you know, and more gratitude. And so that's a really positive outcome. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting, I obviously, in, as you shared earlier, um, the book that I've written is about aging, optimistic aging. What's interesting there is that older people also have this experience, you know, kind of at the end of life, as mortality nears, there's actually a cherishing that increases happiness for the elderly. Um, as on average, older folks are actually um, statistically happier than middle-aged people. And part of it is exactly this issue of like life suddenly becoming a little shorter, and that brings things into focus in a different way. So the opportunity here is to reprioritize it to, to savor, especially each other, 
especially relationships, um, and that becomes pretty precious. That's maybe a hard thing right now when the loss is so raw. Again, down the road, that's something to just look for of like how priorities can shift, how life becomes more meaningful can be very powerful. I really appreciate this information and everything that's happened here. And initially, we were going to have a call that was just about your book. And, and I want to talk about your book, which is Optimistic Aging, From Midlife to the Good Life, an action plan. So let's talk about the book that you wrote a little bit here and pivot over to that. Hi. So going from midlife to the good life. What have you learned about this, and what are the issues that people face in midlife? So one of the most surprising findings as I dug into the research about aging is that about 70% on average of how we will age is actually based on lifestyle. Only about 30% of it is genetics. And I think when most people think about, you know, imagine themselves getting older, they look to their older relatives and think, okay, I'll, I'll age like that. And the problem with focusing on it from a genetic perspective is, first of all, it's inaccurate in general. How we live our lives matters much more than what our genetic endowment is. But the other thing is it leaves us in kind of a passive stance. And so one of the things I got very excited about when I delved into this research was really looking at how many different things that we can do in midlife to really set ourselves up to be at our best with age. And what was fascinating is the sort there are sort of the obvious things that we think about, like exercise and diet and that kind of stuff. And that's important. So I won't minimize that. That is important. But there also are a lot of other areas of health that um, we don't tend to focus on. And we've been talking about it already in our program today around emotional health and social support. Um, not only are those two things really important in dealing with natural disasters, but they're also crucial to lifelong well-being. And so one of the strongest findings in the aging literature is the importance of social support. And that can look like having a healthy, happy marriage, but it doesn't have to be a life partner. It can be having dear friends, being close with your siblings, being close with your kids, having neighbors who are dear to you. Those kinds of relationships are probably the strongest predictor, one of the strongest predictors of how we will age. Those kinds of findings were really intriguing to me. And so the book that I put together is just really a crash course of options for engagement, just all kinds of different ways. There's not a one-size-fits-all. The book has multiple kind of focal points of physical health, cognitive functioning, emotional health, and social health. And within each of those chapters, there's like, you know, eight to 10 different options of things you can do to just take charge of your aging. The reason I wrote it for people in middle age is because really what they find is that it's a cumulative impact of how we're living in our 40s, 50s, and 60s pretty well predicts how we'll do in our 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s. And so if we can grab a hold of that time in our lives and be constructive then, um, we're going to be in much better shape as we're older. And it's never too late to intervene, but the earlier you intervene, the better. It's kind of like financial investing, right? You want to invest your money over time, and you also want to make health investments in midlife. And the other part of it, which I find very exciting, is that when you're making health investments with a thought of wanting to be at your best with retirement, it also just dramatically improves the quality of your life in the here and now. So that is a definite win-win. When we met, um, you were speaking at a conference in San Francisco, and I really liked what you had to say. One of the things you talked about was having an aging role model. So someone yes. in your life that you view has aged really well. 
And you also yeah. shared a blog. It was an interesting blog for people mm-hmm. that are aging and things that they're doing in their later years of their life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I'd be happy to. One of the findings in the research that's really important is that the level of optimism or pessimism we have about aging really predicts how we're going to age. And that, you know, that is malleable. So we want to actually look for aging role models. And it's hard because kind of media wise, we're surrounded by some bleak perspectives. And there are lots of examples of people who aren't aging that well. So that tends to be kind of our, our perspective. So you got to kind of, you got to be pretty active to look for aging well role models. The site that you're talking about is called Growing Boulder, B-O-L-D-E-R, instead of Older Growing Boulder. That website, they're on Facebook, they they have, you know, various areas for content, but it's just a kick. And, and what you find is examples of older adults who are just inspiring, whether it's looking for people in my community or in my family or wherever. I just collect optimistic aging role models because it helps me envision myself as a successful vibrant, physically capable, cognitively sharp, happy, connected older adults. And that's what I'm shooting for. And I would invite you to do the same. We're speaking with Dr. Margit Cox-Henderson and her book is Optimistic Aging from Midlife to the Good Life, an action plan. And you can go on the show notes. We'll have a link to Margit's website and the book information, or you can visit online, MargetHenderson.com. That's M-A-R-G-I-T Henderson.com. Dr. Margaret, thank you so much for being on the program today. Mike, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Now it's time for the Nonprofit Spotlight with your host, Michael Anderson, on Big Money in the 805. Nonprofit Spotlight. Here's a local group we want you to know about, Nonprofit Spotlight. Today's Spotlight is brought to you by Era Energy. Powered by safety, innovation, and community, we help keep California moving forward. Our guest today is Suze Montgomery. She's also known as the Senior Advocate for Ventura County. Now, you may have met Suze teaching at the Ventura Adult Center for Education or connecting seniors to resources at one of the senior centers. You can always reach Suze at 805-258-8000. Suze. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for the invitation, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Suze, share with our listeners what you're up to and how you're helping the seniors connect to resources and and how you're supporting them in so many ways. See, maybe start with a little background, too. 17 years ago, I was asked to actually go into one of our senior nursing homes. We call them SNFs, Skilled Nursing Facilities, and actually evaluate one of our VASE, which is Ventura Adult Education, senior classes. I wasn't even aware of the fact that they had senior classes. And when I went in, they were singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. That was the entire class that was in the nursing home with the instructor. And I, my eyes flew open. I didn't say anything. I sat in the back with a pad of paper and made a couple of notes and went back to the Venture Unified School District, which offered me a job to go in there and do the same thing. And I thought to myself, do I really want to sing nursery rhymes? And gee whiz, this is the way we treat our seniors? I was a little appalled. With uh, that, I went back for about a month and evaluated more and audited the classes and gave them a prospectus of what I envisioned with the help of many of the students in the class, what they wanted 
to do. No one ever asked them what they wanted. So we came up with a class outline, which is kind of, it's movable feast. It's whatever they want to do that day. Into this day, that's how my classes are arranged. So I started not doing senior work. I was working for a large book corporation for about 17 years prior to that, and I enjoyed my job. I didn't want to leave my job, but after spending a month with seniors in a class, I fell in love with them. It was as simple as that. I love their sweet little souls. So still there, 17 years later, still doing. Well, doing a wonderful job, I might say, as well. And talk to us about the numbers. Some people call it the silver tsunami. How does it look for us here in Ventura County with seniors? Well, it's interesting that you use that term because I came up with Silver Tsunami because I was doing a lot of research on just sheer numbers of seniors. I've kind of got a knack for seeing trends that are going to probably occur in the future. I read a lot of future newspapers and a lot of economics, and I can see a trend. And it didn't take me to find out from an expert that the trend was changing. And this was probably about 12 years ago. I started to see this huge number of baby boomers like myself and others take over. I actually saw them in the future and how they would impact the economy on a direct level and also a global level about how the increase from the boomers, our generation, I'm 69 years old, are going to live longer than any preceding generation because of health care, medical innovations and that type of thing and just saw the numbers increase and thinking to myself wow we're not ready and then when I did some local numbers and by the way the senior tsunami locally is growing so fast it's frightening in the city of Ventura alone we're uh, crawling up on about 30 percent of the entire population of the city of Ventura which is about 150 these days and then also on a countywide level we're about 28 percent of seniors there too which will impact everything and everyone on some level. So seeing the numbers alone, I thought, wow, I don't think anybody's ready for this senior tsunami. I didn't want to, you know, or silver tsunami, which I saw occurring. Just within the past, I'd say, three years, I think people are starting to wake up to the fact that we have an issue here or a problem. We need to address it and get ready for it, but nobody is. It's really sad to watch that we have waiting lists for people that want to live in independent facilities, you know, just like a large dorm type of arrangement, like apartment housing. There's no resources for them. There's no place to go for them either. A lot of people are retiring early, and when they retire early, they go home and sit in front of a TV set. What's the quality of life there? I mean, there is none. And then they die early. It's a real problem, and I think it's going to be a struggle to connect on that. But let me ask you this. What advice for aging could you share? For the seniors and aging, what is a piece of advice that you might offer? I'll take uh, my friend Dave Bianco. By the way, Dave Bianco just died about two years ago. And Dave Bianco was the founder of Elder Host, which is a group of traveling, pretty much educated seniors that travel globally for these educational pursuits. And Dave Bianco actually was very instrumental in giving me good advice many years ago by saying, hey, invest in something like this or watch like what the numbers are going to be and they're not prepared. But by him actually, you know, putting together Elder Hostel, which was a really great model for further education. Now, I created the Extended Learning Academy, which is not a real school per se, but I teach these classes with the Extended Learning 
academy in senior housing, for example, like skilled nursing facilities. Also, I actually teach, <laughs> you might laugh here, but people that are in memory care, they are able to be reached by creating old, you know, old memories and linking them together with today's going on. For example, my classes that I teach on Friday, independently of my school district, which is my day off every Friday, I get to teach, when I teach in these facilities, I ask them what they want to learn and then cobble together some activity such as I use like the learning channel or the history channel and download what happened in history years ago and to make it relevant, link it to what's happening today. Maybe it's politics, maybe it's, you know, uh, geography, maybe it's history pieces. But again, it brings up and elicits old memory and link it to what's happening today. You've got an educational opportunity for a group discussion, which always occurs. I think it's where we should be going, Mike. Don't treat the senior like they're sitting around just taking up space. And when I see warehousing of seniors, it breaks my heart. They have so many yeah. wonderful stories to share and they have so much wisdom and experience in education. They need to stay engaged in living and learning. Our guest today is Suze Montgomery. She's also known as the Senior Advocate for Ventura County. And you can reach Suze at 805-258-8000. You're tuned in to Big Money in the 805 with Michael Anderson. Now it's time for Michael to go to the mailbag and answer some questions from listeners. Mailbag, we answer your questions from listeners about money and financial issues. Brought to you by AllocationLink.com, investment management that is low cost and smart. Learn more at AllocationLink.com. Today we have Steve Lazenby with ASR Property Restoration. He's lived in Santa Paula since 1950 and he's retired Santa Paula City Fire. His company, ASR Property Restoration, specializes in water and fire restoration. Their phone number is 805-794-6094. Steve, thanks for being on the program today. You bet. So first question, I think a lot of people are wondering, what is restoration and when is that necessary? Well, the situations that we're going through right now where the fire moved through our area, there's a lot of houses that are destroyed and right down to the foundation. That's new construction. But if a house is still standing and it's suffered some damage from the fire, whether it's smoke or heat damage or broken windows, even charring or maybe part of the, the roof burned off, then that's a restoration job, which means that it should be handled by someone who knows how to restore a house so that not only is it rebuilt, but it doesn't have any of the remnants of the fire, such as the smell of smoke or any of the old damage that was left by the fire. So it's different than new construction. It's literally restoring the house to its former condition. And another question people were asking, should I get a public adjuster? Or should I just deal directly with my insurance company? What insight can you share? Well, there's a time and a place for a public adjuster. And in my experience, Ben, when the insurance company becomes an adversary, in other words, they're not providing the kind of service that you hired them to provide, which is to restore you back to your, your previous condition. And if uh, any time passes and they don't cooperate or they become you know, like a hostile opponent, then it might be good to hire a public adjuster. They can represent you, but the downside of that is the public adjuster charges a percentage from 5, 10, 15 percent of the loss. So if you had a total loss of, uh, let's say, you know, $200,000, it could cost you ten or $20,000 of that 
to pay the public adjuster. But if you're working with your insurance company and they're doing what they're supposed to do, and I, I feel like they will, then you should be able to handle that yourself. And maybe the best way to do it is to hire an honest, reputable company, construction or restoration, who would represent you to the insurance company. In other words, they work for the victim, but they work with the insurance company to make sure that the insurance company does everything they're supposed to do. To make it simple is when you hire a contractor, the contractor agrees to rebuild your house or restore your house, and then they go to the insurance company and negotiate with them on how much it should cost to do that. And when the uh, restoration or construction company gets that agreement with the insurance company, then the insurance company agrees to pay to have that done. And so in the end, you should end up with a new house. And the final question, some people ask, how long will restoration take? And for example, I have a, a few clients and they have a lot of smoke damage. And I have another one that had some home damage to one room and the windows broke. How long would restoration on something like that take on some, a home that's still there? Well, of course, it'll, it'll vary. Best case scenario, when there's only been one or two houses burned in a community, a fire where, say, it's in the bedroom and the bedroom's about the only place that's damaged with smoke damage through the house, it can take six months to eight months for that kind of a job to be done. And I can only imagine that in our situation now where we have hundreds of homes, that it's going to take longer than that. And it's not the insurance's fault, and it's not necessarily the contractor's fault. You know, maybe nobody fault. It's just that it takes so long to get all the permits or all the engineering done. And once all of that's gathered together and everybody agrees, why then the construction can start. We're talking with Steve Lazenby of ASR Property Restoration. Phone number is 805-794-6094. Steve, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Well, that does it for our show today. Be sure to stick around and listen to the new program, Inside the 805. That's coming right up. Special thanks to Dr. Margaret Cox-Henderson. Suze Montgomery, and Steve Lazenby for being on the program. And if you have questions about the show or questions about your financial matters, you can always contact me online at marinantha.com, M-A-R-A-N-A-N-T-H-A.com, or leave me a message on my answering service, 805-665-3767. Have a great week and join us again next time.